Kronos, a techno-thriller in ten episodes, written by William Hearn. Narrated by the author. Episode 6, Tower Bridge. Chapter 33. I wait for my torturers to return and continue their work. I still feel dizzy and sick. There are soft footsteps outside, and the door opens slowly. It's Nadia. She creeps into the room, a gun in hand. She gasps as she sees the state of me, but she quickly composes herself again. Tom, she whispers, are you okay? No, I say, beginning to sob again. They poured something into my ears. Something cold, I don't know what. I threw up, still dizzy. Nadia reaches into a pocket in her trousers and pulls out a small syringe. She removes the cover from the needle with her teeth and spits it out. This is morphine, she says. It'll make you feel better. She plunges the syringe into my left bicep and presses the plunger. She then pulls the syringe back out and tosses it away. Nadia looks through the amputation instruments on the table and selects a knife. She uses it to cut the ropes restraining me. She pulls my puke-laden sweater over my head, turns it inside out, and then uses it to wipe my face and trousers clean. Satisfied with her work, she bends down and looks up at me. We have to go, but first, do you know where Max is? she asks. I shake my head. I think Max escaped from the men, I say. I don't know where he is. They got me before I could find out much from him. Nadia tisks softly under her breath. Are you able to walk? she asks. Let's see, I say. I stand up from the chair. The room spins briefly, but then settles down. My feet hold me. Nadia looks me over. You look steady enough, she says. Unfortunately, getting out of here will not be easy. There are some very determined men between us and safety, and there is only one of me. She reaches down to her belt and pulls out another handgun. Do you know how to use one of these? she asks. I think so, I say. I once went to a shooting range in Las Vegas. We took along a network server that had been giving us grief all year. We blasted it with every weapon we could rent. Handguns, assault rifle, chain gun. Nadia cuts me off. Okay, okay, she says. She places the gun firmly in my right hand, arming it first. Just point and shoot, she instructs me. But check first that I'm not in the way. Promise, I say. Nadia motions me to the door. She opens it part way and looks out, checking both ways. Satisfied, she gestures me forward. We find ourselves in a long concrete corridor. It's deserted. There are metal steps leading upwards at one end. Along the rest of the corridor, at regular intervals, are metal doors. Each is identical to the one that we have just come through. Lights are mounted on the walls every couple of metres for illumination, though many are broken. We hold our breath and listen carefully. Everything is very quiet. Nadia goes first, creeping towards the steps. 
I follow behind her. I feel much better now. I feel calm, even a little giddy, light-hearted. Morphine is incredible stuff. We reach the foot of the stairs. Nadia inches up the first couple of steps, then pauses and listens. Then she continues to move up. I follow. I have so many questions that I want to ask her, it's hard to know where to start. Then I realize that it might be useful if I had at least a vague idea of where we are, if only so that I know where to run in the event that things get dangerous. Nadia holds her finger to her mouth. Shh, she says, listening again. I do as she says. I hear footsteps coming towards us. We crouch down on the steps. The footsteps come closer and closer, then stop. We hold our breaths for what seems a lifetime. Finally, the footsteps resume, this time receding into the distance. We continue climbing the steps. At the top is another passageway, looking much like the one on the lower floor. We creep slowly along. The occasional rumbles from the ceiling seem to be much louder now. Indeed, they feel as if they are right on top of us. The corridor ends by opening out into a wide, enclosed space. On the far side of it, I can see another passage, shorter this time, and the bottom of another staircase. Nadia kneels down and then slowly peers out into the space, first one way and then the other. Then she turns to me. This is where things get difficult, she whispers. We must cross this room to get to the stairs to the surface. Unfortunately, there are three men in the room who will try to stop us. I nod. My heartbeat, already high, increases further. I feel it hammering away within my ribcage. You will cross the room first, orders Nadia. I will provide you with cover. When you get to the other side, you will cover for me. Okay? Okay, I say. I can't think of any alternative plan to suggest. Good, Nadia says. She stands up, takes a few deep breaths, and then swings around the corner, facing into the room with gun raised. She starts to fire. Go! she shouts. I spring up and run as fast as I can across the space. All I have eyes for is the passage on the other side. Behind me, I hear Nadia's gun fire repeatedly. I think I hear other shots as well. I reach the other side, diving into the passageway. I quickly pick myself up and look back to where I came from. Nadia has ducked back into the passage and is kneeling down. I gesture that I'm okay. Nadia holds up her left hand, showing five fingers. She starts a countdown with her hand. Five, four, three, two... One, I spring out of the passage with my gun pointed, both hands on the handle. There are two large overturned tables in the centre of the room. How many men hide behind them I cannot tell. I start to fire, hoping that my shots will keep whoever is hiding behind the tables pinned down while Nadia crosses the room. As I fire, the recoil from the weapon stings my hands. I think my eyes are shut for most of the shots. Nadia sprints across the room and reaches the passage. Run up the stairs, she orders. Wait for me at the top. 
I'll keep them busy down here. I run up the circular staircase as quick as I can. Below me, I hear shots ring out again. The staircase is long, at least a hundred steps, and I'm panting by the time I reach the top. There's another short passage leading to a door. A big padlock secures it. The firing below me stops, and I hear swift footsteps running up the stairs. Nadia appears, barely out of breath, despite having sprinted up the full length of the staircase. Nearly there, she says encouragingly. I point silently to the padlock securing the door. Not a problem, says Nadia. She reaches into her jacket and pulls out a pair of bolt cutters, the same pair that Christoph was threatening me with earlier. The tool cuts through the U-bar of the padlock in seconds. I shudder to think what it would have done to my fingers. We open the door and race out to find ourselves in a Toronto subway station. Commuters walk all round us, caught up in their everyday existence, oblivious to our presence. Nadia quickly takes my gun and conceals both it and hers under her jacket to avoid undue attention. Where are we? I ask. Queen Station, replies Nadia. There was another station underneath it, Lower Queen, built back in the middle of the last century, but it was never brought into service. I now realise that all the rumbling noises that I had heard must have been underground trains trundling back and forth. Let's go find the others, says Nadia decisively. We must get to Max before Christoph does. Chapter 34 Late Tuesday Evening Nadia and I quickly make our way back to the hotel. Faiza, Mina and Buckeridge are there, waiting anxiously. What on earth happened to you? asks Faiza. The Bratva found Max and me and chased us from the library, I reply. Max escaped. I didn't. They tried to torture me to find out where Max was, but... As I didn't know anything, I couldn't tell them much. At the mention of torture, Mina insists on checking me over thoroughly. She frowns as I tell her about the cold liquid that was poured into my ear canals. She examines both ears carefully, including leaning in and taking several deep sniffs. I need to look inside your ear canals, she says. Oh, for a proper otoscope right now, but I'll just have to improvise. She pulls out her smartphone, turns the flashlight on, starts video recording, and then uses it to inspect the inside of both of my ears. As Mina checks me over, I glance across at Nadia. She's sitting calmly, staring out of the window, seemingly deep in thought. She appears completely unfazed by the events of the day. She barely has a hair out of place. Seeing her, a casual observer might imagine that she had spent the day shopping in the fashion malls or pampering herself at a spa. It's hard to believe that little more than an hour ago she was in the middle of a gun battle. I realise how little I know about this woman, although I'm very glad that she was around to rescue me. Finally, Mina turns her phone off and stands up. I think you're OK, she says. Based on what you've described... It sounds like they did something called caloric stimulation on you. It's a neurological test, designed to assess damage to the nervous system, 
especially the brainstem. It's very uncomfortable for the patient while it's being done, particularly if you don't know what's happening, but it doesn't cause any long-term harm. So what exactly did they put in my ears, I ask? Probably nothing more than chilled water, answers Mina. The temperature differential between your body and the cold water disturbs a liquid called endolymph, deep inside the inner part of your ear. That caused the feelings of vertigo and nausea. It's unpleasant, but the effects are only temporary. So basically nothing to worry about then, I say, immensely relieved. Well, it's I for that, replies Mina, or they poured into your skull some kind of nanoenzyme, which is now slowly digesting your brain, turning it into goo. She's joking, of course. At least, I think she is. Phaser interjects. The important thing is that you escaped, and that Max is still free. Now, how do we make contact with him? He's hardly likely to stay around Toronto, waiting for the Bradford to find him. I get to my feet and start to pace the room. I always think better when I'm moving. Max will probably be lying low right now, I muse aloud. He won't want to do anything or go anywhere that might draw attention. But he won't want to stay hiding for long. He'll want to move on to another town, or city, or even another country. We have to get in touch with him quickly. Faser nods. Nadia looks sceptical. Fine, but easier said than done, she says. How do we do that? I shrug my shoulders, and I'm about to say that I haven't a clue when a flash of memory suddenly hits me. I remember the laptop, the desk that Max sat at, his laptop, the screen of his laptop, the open email client. I think I've just remembered his new email address, I reply. I pull out my laptop and sit down at the hotel room's desk. I fire up my email client and then pause, considering what to write. I realise that the email needs to be very carefully worded. For all Max knows, I'm still being held captive by the Bratva, and I'm writing the email under duress by my captors. After a moment's consideration, I start to type. Max, I have managed to escape our pursuers, but both of us are still in danger. Need to meet with you urgently. You pick the time and the venue for our meeting. I will come alone, but suggest you think carefully about how and when to meet, just in case you think that I'm being forced to write this note by my captors. I'm not, but there's no way that I can prove this to you. Tom. When I finish typing, I lean back to review my message. Nadia leans over to read it too. Looks good, she says. Now all we need is Max's new email address. I smile and click on the to field of the email. I then start to type philip at lawrencearabia.org Philip is Max's middle name, and Lawrence of Arabia is his favourite movie, I explain. We saw it together at university when it was screened by the Film Society. Max hadn't seen it before, and he was transfixed by it. Straight after seeing the film with me, he went home and downloaded a digital copy. I think he watched it three times straight through the first night. Faser nods her head. Yes, he still watches it, she says. 
I've lost count of the number of times that I've woken up in the middle of the night to find him watching it on his laptop. Let's hope that he hasn't changed his email address since this morning, says Nadia. Only one way to find out, I say. I click on the send button and the email disappears from the screen. Now all we can do is wait, says Faiza. I'll make some more coffee. While we wait, I decide to go to my room and get some rest. Or more accurately, try to rest. My mind's still buzzing, trying to anticipate Max's next move. We have to find him before the Bratfeld does. They won't stop until they've found Max and extracted the information they need. Somehow, I doubt that Max will survive the experience. Nadia enters the room and sits beside me on the bed. How are you? she asks. All things considered, not too bad, I answer. Compared to what Christoph was threatening to do to me, I got off pretty lightly. At the mention of Christoph's name, Nadia shudders. You know Christoph? I ask. I know of him, she answers. I've never met him. He was a high-ranking officer in the Russian military's cyber unit. He quit suddenly about five years ago. He joined the Bratva and led its online activities. Very few people have met him. Even fewer have survived. As I said before, the Bratva doesn't leave loose ends hanging around. I sit silent for a moment, thinking about my encounter with Christoph. I have little doubt that he would have killed me had the interrogation continued. I haven't said thank you, I say. You know, for rescuing me. Nadia nods. I did what I had to do, she answers. As we're alone, I figure that now is as good a time as any to get answers to the questions I've been dying to ask her since the rescue. How did you manage to find me? I ask. I reached the library just as you and Max were running out, Nadia answers. I spotted the two guys chasing you and didn't want to shout out to you in case they came after me. I followed along at a distance, getting on to the same subway train as all of you. I followed when you left the train and ran up to the surface. I saw Max get over the fence and you captured. Max got on a bike and moved off so quickly I couldn't catch up with him. I waited around, hidden, watching to see what they did with you. I saw them put you into a van and drive off, but I was able to hail a taxi and follow you downtown. When the van stopped in a side street, I got out and I watched as they carried you out and into a basement entrance. That led to a maze of corridors, eventually ending in the lower level of Queen Station. There I found you. And where did you get the guns? I ask. They belong to the Bratva, Nadia says. They seemed to have plenty, so I was able to grab a couple without them noticing. You stole them? I ask, surprised. From the Bratva? Yes, she says, matter-of-factly. We needed weapons, and they had more than enough. I am flabbergasted. What you did, I say my voice cracking with emotion, was incredibly dangerous. But thank you. Thank you. You're welcome, Nadia says. She seems remarkably blasé about the events of today. Had the situation been reversed, 
I'm sure that I would have been a nervous wreck by now, thinking about everything that could have gone wrong. Where are the guns now? I ask. They're gone. I disposed of them, Nadia says. Before I can say anything, she adds. Don't worry. I cleaned our fingerprints off them first. Look, I don't want to come across as sexist, but how on earth did you learn to fire a gun like that? I ask. It's not the kind of thing that most girls learn to do as they grow up. Nadia pauses for a moment, considering how to respond. I served in the military, she answers. You were in the army, I say. No, says Nadia. I served at sea with the Polish Navy. I didn't realise Poland had one, I say. We have almost as much coastland as the Netherlands, Nadia replies, slightly testily. So yes, of course we have a navy. How long were you in the navy for? I ask. Almost ten years, Nadia replies. I was in the Naval Infantry Division. Naval Infantry? The term is unfamiliar to me. Then I realise what she's referring to. Oh, you mean the Marines, I exclaim. Yes, the Marines, Nadia confirms. My Naval Academy class was the first to accept women. Did you see combat, I ask? Two tours of duty in Syria, one of Somalia, she answers. I remember the extended NATO missions in both countries. The Somalia engagement did not go well, with significant casualties on both sides. It's hard to imagine Nadia being part of all that. Those must have been tough assignments, I say. Yes, says Nadia. Very tough. She looks away from me and says nothing more. Clearly, this isn't a topic that she wants to share much about. She gets to her feet and then pats me on the shoulder. You really should get some rest, she says sternly. I'll go and check on the others. I'll give it a go, I say, but I'm not finding it easy to sleep. Well, try anyway, Nadia answers. She bends down and gives me a quick kiss on the lips, and then heads out of the room, shutting the door behind her. I lie down again and try to relax by staring at the ceiling. There's a knock at the door, and Buckeridge enters. He sits down in the chair across from my bed. He's holding two glasses and a bottle of Irish whiskey. He pours out two generous measures. Nadia said you were having difficulty relaxing, Buckeridge says, offering one of the glasses to me. I thought that a drink might help a bit. Despite not being much of a spirits drinker, I accept the glass. I take a sip. It burns the back of my throat, but is smoother than I expected. How are you feeling? Buckeridge asks. Okay, I guess, I say, taking another sip. Good, says Buckeridge. He hesitates for a moment, then leans forward in his seat and looks me straight in the face. I think that it's high time you told me what's really going on. Why is the Bratva after Max? I'm sorry, I say, blushing. I really meant to tell you everything, but there never seemed to be time. Buckeridge looks at his watch. I'm not going anywhere right now. Start at the beginning and tell me everything. And I do, right from Faser calling me in the middle of the night, to meeting Nadia in Iceland, and the events at the cyber commune, 
I tell him about Max and Nadia's investigations into Cube and the uncovering of the background to the Kronos group. Buckeridge listens without interruption, barely moving as I speak. When I finish, finally, he gives out a long sigh. I wish I'd been told all of this when we first met, he says. I wasn't sure how you'd react, I say. And when you met Nadia, it just seemed easier to introduce her as a friend of the family. You were being so helpful, and I didn't want to lose your support due to your being angry that Max was doing work on the side. I'm not going to pretend that I'm overjoyed to hear about employees of mine moonlighting for other organisations, Buckeridge says, but I'm hardly going to give up on them just because of that. I'm sorry, I should have realised that, I say, blushing again. Buckeridge reaches over and pats my leg. Apology accepted, dear boy, he says. In my experience, the short-term benefits of shielding people from the truth are always outweighed in the long term by the loss of trust. The truth always comes out, sooner or later. You should remember that in future. I promise, I will, I say and I mean it sincerely. Which reminds me, says Buckeridge, reaching into an inside pocket in his jacket. Before flying over here, I did manage to find something out about the Typhoon database. It's a highly classified government database, a mapping of machine, Ethernet, Internet IDs to individual users, he says. It allows the three-letter acronym security organisations to identify individuals from their usage of particular computers. He pulls out a memory stick and hands it to me. Don't ask how I did it, but I was able to obtain a partial dump of the database, he says, gesturing at the memory stick. There's about half a billion records on that. My sources tell me that the overall database is many times this size. Are there any cube addresses in the database, I ask? Not that I've seen, replies Buckeridge, which, when you think about it, is puzzling in itself. How so? I ask. Well, he answers, I'd expect the law enforcement agencies to come across some addresses as part of their search of digital equipment confiscated during criminal investigations. The fact that none of these have been put into the database is strange. A wide range of machine IDs are present, Ethernet, IP address, MAC address, etc., but not ones related to Cube. I don't see any technical reason they couldn't be put in the database, so there must be another explanation. We finish our drinks in silence. I'm keen to take a look at the contents of the memory stick, but I can feel myself succumbing to the effects of the alcohol. I feel my head beginning to nod. I am slipping into drowsiness. Buckeridge takes his leave of me, and I drift in and out of consciousness for a while. Next thing I know, I'm being roused, none too gently, from sleep by Nadia. She's excited about something. Max has replied, she shouts. Chapter 35 Thursday, 1am I'm standing on the south bank of the River Thames, in the small park beside City Hall. Looming over me is Tower Bridge. It's a cold, clear night, and I have to stamp my feet repeatedly to keep the cold from seeping into them. 
A low fog obscures much of the river beside me. There are only a few other people about. London feels like a city asleep. I'm hoping, desperately hoping, that I'm right with my guess. We have one chance to get this right, and there is less than one hour before I find out. Early on Wednesday morning, Max had responded to my email. His reply was short and decidedly cryptic. Tom, good to hear that you are safe. Have left Toronto in search of some peace and quiet. Hope you'll be able to find me. Thursday, 2am. Come alone. Max. What on earth does that mean? asked Fazer. I paced the room thinking. Then the answer came to me. It's a phrase Max used at university when he really needed to get some work done, I said. He would go out of the flat and go sit on the south bank by the Thames in the fresh air with his laptop and work from there. Goodness knows why, but it worked for him. So, he's heading to London? said Buckeridge. Yes, it would seem so, I said. So, of course, we made plans to fly there ourselves. We caught the first plane to London in the morning, arriving in the mid-evening. I took everyone back to my flat. We agreed that I would head out to meet Max by myself, with the ladies and Buckeridge staying back at the flat and awaiting my word. I walk up and down the south bank, more to give my feet something to do than anything else. After spending the whole day in the cramped confines of a plane seat, it feels good to be able to walk freely and stretch the legs. All of the trees have Christmas lights on them, illuminated at this hour despite the lack of an audience. The Thames chugs past, unseen in the dark. Some distance off, upriver, I hear the rattle of a late-night train crossing Alexandra Bridge, heading into Cannon Street Station. I wonder whether or not Max will turn up. Have I inferred the correct location for our meeting? What if he had been thinking of a venue somewhere else in London? Am I even in the right country? I am roused from my thoughts by the sight of a familiar figure walking towards me through the gloom. It's Max. I guessed right. Max walks up to me and we hug. It's good to see you, he says. I'm glad you were able to escape from the Bratva. Me too, I reply. Christoph isn't the kind of guy you want to hang out with. Trust me. We find a nearby bench and sit down. I'm so sorry, Max says. I really didn't mean to drag you into this. Or anyone else for that matter. Don't worry, I tell him. I just want to help you. Whatever trouble you're in, just tell me what I can do. Max sighs. I'm not sure where to begin, he says. Tell me how it all began, I urge him, and go on from there. Max leans back and gazes into the distance for a moment. Then he begins to speak. It all began not long after I joined Dorg. It's a great organisation to work for. Buckeridge is a living legend, after all. But the pay isn't exactly great. I've always been interested in computer security, as you know. I'd spend my evenings reading every InfoSec online forum that I could find. One day, I saw an advertisement on one of them for some contract work doing penetration testing. 
It was all perfectly legal, done with the full knowledge and permission of the client. Good, white-hat stuff, all totally above board. With the baby on the way, I was looking for some extra money, and so I answered the ad. I got accepted, and I tested out the new e-commerce website, identifying three major security holes for the client. I built up a reputation as a solid security tester after that. People would email me, offering me security work, usually more penetration testing. The pay was good, and I could fit the work into my spare time, working in my evenings or at the weekends. About three months ago, one of the people I had done work for, a hacker by the name of Nero, asked me to help with the analysis of Cube. I agreed, not least because they were willing to pay me more than double what I had been getting for any other job. After I'd accepted the gig, I was told that what they were really interested in was finding out the real identity of Mehmet Yilmaz. That seemed like an interesting challenge. I went through the original version of this cube source code and compared it to the billions of lines of other open source code written to see if I could find any stylistic similarities. Nothing came back as a meaningful match, so I immersed myself in Cube, reading as much as I could about its theory and implementation. The more I read, the more certain I became that no one person could have devised and implemented Cube on their own. The range of skills and knowledge is just too wide, and too deep, for any one person. I spent time in various underworld chat groups, listening to the chatter about Cube, particularly anything to do with its origins. I heard mention of a group called Kronos, very shadowy, very secretive, that they were the real creators of Cube. When I started to dig deeper into the group, things turned strange. It started with my receiving emails telling me to stop my investigations. These emails escalated in tone quickly, and soon I received threatening phone calls. These threats scared me, but I was determined to continue. Considering how popular Cube had become, it just didn't seem right that the creators of it could hide behind a fairy tale about its origins. I soon learned that others were seeking the real identity of Mehmet Yomez. The Bratva were chief among them, and they weren't going to let anything stop them in their quest for control of Cube. One Friday evening, as I was leaving work, I was stopped by two men, right outside the dog offices. They knew my name, they knew where I worked. I was able to trick them and get away, but I knew then that I'd have to go into hiding. I didn't want Faser to get pulled into this, so I decided to disappear without telling her anything. I figured the less she knew, the safer she'd be. I went home, grabbed a few things without saying anything to Faser, and then headed to the bus station. All I wanted to do was to get as far away from San Francisco as possible. I caught a bus to Northern California and spent time at a cyber commune near Sebastopol. From there, I continued north and eventually crossed the border into Canada. Getting across was almost trivially easy. It's a border that's nearly 6,000 miles long. Even the US can't build walls across that distance. I headed to Toronto 
as I figured that, as the biggest and most cosmopolitan of Canada's cities, it would be easy for me to blend in there. I'd been betrayed, and all I could hope to do was to lie low until things blew over. I didn't expect anyone to find me so quickly. It wasn't easy to find you, I say. We had lots of help. Many people were very worried about you. Max nods and looks embarrassed. I'm so sorry about all of this. I didn't mean to cause you any concern, he says, lowering his eyes. And I certainly didn't want to hurt Faser. I'm doing all of this to protect her and the baby. Well, you've got us to help you now, I say. You're not alone any more. Max pats my shoulder. Thank you, he says. This is too big for me to handle by myself. Faser's here in London, I tell him. Do you feel ready to see her? Max nods. Definitely, he says. I've so much I need to explain to her. I pull Faser's phone out of my pocket. I haven't had time to get myself a replacement band yet and call Buckeridge. Faser's phone barely has time to complete a ring cycle before Buckeridge answers. I've got Max with me, I tell him. He's ready to meet up. We're down by the Thames, just beside Tower Bridge. Great, says Buckeridge. We'll head over immediately and meet you at Tower Hill Underground Station. As I hang up the call, I remember my initial conversation with Sam's, particularly his desire to speak with Max. After you left the commune, I say, a former member of Kronos, David Sams, turned up asking for you. Max is startled. Really? he says. What did he want? I didn't get long to talk with him, I say. He said something about links between Cube and the Typhoon database. I didn't know what that was at the time, so I couldn't ask him any more. However, since then, I found out that it's a US government database. It maps machine IDs to particular users. Highly classified. Max rubs the stubble on his chin as he thinks. Really? That's puzzling. Cube addresses are completely anonymized, and a fresh address is generated for each new transaction. His voice trails off as he sinks into deeper thought. Then he suddenly grabs my arm. This could be really serious, he says. This kind of fits all together. I had heard rumours that Kronos was just a front for one of the three-letter acronym security agencies, but I never paid them much attention. However, what if it were just one or two members of the group who were in the employ of one of the agencies? What if they managed to sneak something into the cube code that permits tracking? It would be tricky, I say, thinking hard. As cube is open-sourced, the malicious code changes would have to look innocuous in order to avoid detection. We definitely should look into this. If cube transactions are traceable, the world has to know. Max notices my deliberate use of the first-person plural. You'll help me find out the truth, he asks. Absolutely, I say, sincerely. You have my help as long as you need it, until we get to the bottom of this. Thank you, Max whispers. I really could do with some help. It's time for us to go meet the others. 
However, there's one other topic that's been nagging at me. Look, there's one thing I need to get off my chest, I say. I'm sorry I didn't respond to your email. I kept meaning to, but never quite got round to it. What email? Max asks, looking puzzled. You know, the one you sent me, asking for advice, I reply. I felt so guilty that I didn't respond when you wanted help with Kronos. Max chuckles. Oh, that email, he laughs. That was nothing to do with Kronos. I'd been thinking of building a new gaming rig, and I wanted some advice about the latest graphics cards. It's my turn to laugh. Really? I say, feeling a great weight instantly left from my conscience. Nothing to do with Kronos? Nothing, roars Max. We sit side by side on the bench, roaring our heads off. I haven't had such a belly laugh in years. Finally, we regain our composure. I glance at a nearby clock. It's time to go meet the others. We rise from the bench and walk along the sides of the Thames, still chuckling about the misunderstanding. We then climb the steps onto Tower Bridge itself and start to walk across the bridge towards the Tower of London. At this late hour, there is little road traffic across the bridge and no pedestrians apart from ourselves. In the distance, I see Buckeridge, Faser, Nadia and Mina coming on to the bridge from the north. I wave. They spot us and hurry towards us. You've brought quite a party, says Max. Even my boss. He pauses for a moment, considering. Does that mean he knows about my side job as a security tester? Afraid so, I tell him. You're going to have to handle the fallout from that one by yourself. Max looks beyond Buckeridge, squinting his eyes. Who's the woman behind Faser? he asks. Oh, that's Nadia, I say. Who? asks Max. You know, Nadia Miroff, I say. Max still looks blank. I pause, then remember that Max only knows Nadia by her hacker handle. You know her as Nero, I say. Max's expression instantly switches to horror, and he grabs my sleeve. But Nero's one of the Bratva, he hisses to me, in utter panic. Turning around, I look frantically along the bridge. Faser and co. are now only ten metres from us. Buckeridge is closest to the side of the bridge. Mina and Faser are walking side by side, with Nadia slightly behind all of them. Nadia catches sight of our panicked expressions. From who knows where she pulls a handgun. She swivels and, from point-blank range, shoots Buckeridge straight in the back of the head. Buckeridge instantly goes down in a crumpled heap, most of the contents of his cranium splattered on the pavement. Nadia turns the gun on Faser and Mina. Stop right there, she commands. The women do as they're told. Nadia gestures towards Max. Come over here, she shouts, unless you want your wife to be next. I look at Nadia and then at the lifeless body of Buckeridge. I can't believe what I've just seen. I take a deep breath and try to compose myself. Nadia, don't be a fool, I say. You can't expect to get away with this. You can't go about shooting people in plain sight in London. 
Can't I? Nadia snorts. Not one CCTV camera within a mile of here is currently recording, she says. Until I give the order to turn them back on. I can do what I like. While keeping her gun trained on Mina and Faiza, she pulls out a cell phone and dials a number. It's me, she says, speaking into the phone. We're ready for pickup. She ends the call and puts the phone away. Police sirens start up in the distance. Max, Nadia says, I told you to come over here. She moves the gun so that it is pointed directly at Faze's head. What about Tom? Max says, still holding his gun. Well, I need someone to take the blame for the death of poor old Buckeridge, says Nadia coldly. The police sirens draw nearer. Two police patrol cars, their roof-mounted blue lights flashing, appear at either end of the bridge. They pull across the road and block traffic from entering the bridge in either direction. Two policemen get out of the cars and walk towards us. I recognise them immediately. It's Dumb and D. By the time the real police get here, continues Nadia, we'll be gone. And there will be two eyewitnesses who swear under oath that they saw Tom shoot Buckeridge just before he turned the gun on himself. The fake policemen are getting closer. We are surrounded. Max, Nadia says again, I won't ask you again. Come over here now. All right, all right, says Max. As he walks past me, he suddenly turns. Without warning, he pushes me towards the sides of the bridge. Find the vulnerability and go tell Kronos. You can trust Collins, he whispers to me. Then he hoists me in the air and throws me over the side of the bridge. I fall through the air towards the blackness of the Thames. I look up towards the bridge and see Nadia grab Max's arm and pull him back from the side. Then I hit the water. Or is it that the water hits me? The water is icy cold and it knocks all of the breath from me. I go deep down into the watery darkness, so deep that the lights of London seem faint and distant. My descent slows and I am able to take a few strokes to pull myself back towards air. Spluttering and coughing, I finally surface. Nadia is leaning over the side of the bridge, looking down towards me. I was going to shoot you, but I've got a much better idea, she shouts. Give me control of Cube, and I'll give you your friends back. She disappears from view. I swim as best as I can to the side and haul myself out. Somewhere along the way, I manage to lose one of my shoes. By the time I've made it back up onto the bridge, it's deserted. Even the body of Buckeridge has gone. The pavement is gleaming wet where his corpse lay, all traces of blood removed. The Bratva is, as ever, thorough in cleaning up. With no sign of anyone, I'm forced to consider my own welfare. I'm soaking wet and freezing cold. All sense of feeling is rapidly disappearing from my hands and feet. I have to get dry and warm quickly, or I will succumb to hypothermia. 
Somehow, I manage to limp back home. I quickly change out of my wet clothes and pull fresh ones on. I grab my laptop, plus a few essentials, and head out the door. I'm in my apartment for no more than five minutes. Half an hour later, I'm checking into a hotel. The price is exorbitant, even during this, the tourist off-season, but I need somewhere to hide out. Somewhere Nadia, Christoph, and the rest of the Bratva can't find me. I get into my hotel room and immediately take a long, hot shower to warm up. Then I collapse onto the bed. I can't believe everything that has happened in the past two hours. Nadia, a traitor. Buckeridge, dead. And Max, Mina and Faisa now captured. And it's all my fault. I curse my stupidity for not being able to notice the signs that Nadia was, all the time, a double agent. The way she entered my life, with us immediately seeming to be in peril, blinded me to the possibility that she might have nefarious intentions. And of course, her looks and sex appeal distracted my warning senses. Whatever. My lack of judgment has led to the death of one person already, and three, no, make that four, more are in peril. I rouse myself from my self-pity by reminding myself that I can still save everyone. All I have to do is to find the malicious tracking code in Cube, hunt down the Kronos group, and somehow convince them to hand over control of Cube to the Bratva. I have a lot of work ahead of me. That was Episode 6 of Kronos, written by William Hearn and narrated by the author. For more information about this novel, including how to obtain an ebook or printed hardback copy, please visit the website at chronosthenovel.com. This audio recording is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License.